We're continuing on now in the book of Judges. Um, today we actually are going to be in the final part, part three of the Song of Deborah and Barak, which is uh, Judges chapter 5, verses 24 through 31. By way of introduction, I was thinking this week about the song and about what we read in it. And there's something that came to mind, which is not a surprise to any of you. You all well know this. But in our current age today, there are many outside the church and unfortunately also inside the church that accuse Christianity and the Bible of sexism. That is a bias which favors and endorses men over women as the center of power and as a means of perpetuating what we hear of what is now called the patriarchy. Now, this is a, this is a very um, uh, popular term now, and it's not something that maybe is entirely clear. So um, I went to a, a leading uh, a sociologist and feminist's uh, website and to get a definition of what, what a feminist means when she says patriarchy, because those are the people that would ordinarily and quite often use it, but she defines it as a system of social structures and practices in which men dominate, oppress, and exploit women. And another complaint that's, that's made about Christianity in the Bible, specifically the Bible, is that it is male-orientated, demonstrated in the fact that the evidence given by the critics or the preponderance of biblical images for God in the Bible are masculine. And one of the results of this criticism has been Bible translations that force inclusive language upon the text. Well, these ideas that that are confronting us and confronting society today um, flow from and have contributed to a form of theology in academia known as feminist theology. Now, feminist theology has arisen out of the women's liberation movement. And important topics in contemporary feminist theology, and again, I went to uh, some feminist theologians, and a feminist theologian and a feminist historian who wrote a textbook on introduction to feminist theology, And this is what they say are the important topics in this field of study. Um, Ecofeminism, goddess worship, god language, lesbianism, and various ethnic perspectives. And they also say that this form of, of what they call theology, feminist theology, actually has two main roots. It comes out of something. And the first uh, of these is uh, the philosophy of process thought, which has actually become process theology. Now, at 10 a.m., Pastor Steve talked about open theism, which has a connection to process theology, but there is a difference. Process theology, out of which feminist theology comes, rejects the idea that God is immutable and transcendent from creation. Rather, God is changing and evolving along with the material world. So basically, God has to keep up with us. The other main route is something called liberation theology. Now, this has been around since about the uh, the 60s that I'm aware of, maybe before then, but it really came to light in the 60s, uh, especially in Central and South America. Uh, This views religion as a power to liberate oppressed people from unjust economic, political, and social structures. And it relies very heavily on Marxist theories of social class structure. So both, we can see both the roots and the themes of this school of thought, feminist theology, are clearly not biblical. In fact, these elements idealize the very things that God's word declares to be of the world to be sinful, and to be wicked. Yet the proponents, we must realize this, they refer to themselves as Christians and believe Christianity 
Christianity must evolve along these lines to remain relevant, in their words, and impactful to the modern world. So what's my point? Why am I going on about this? It's to demonstrate that the question of God's word is not solely external to the church, but it is very real in areas that self-identify as the church. Even though we look at what they believe, and it's, it's not orthodox Christianity by any stretch, but they present themselves as Christians and as part of the church. And the secular world accepts their self-identification. That is what we must realize. I think we can clearly see in this just short overview that this is false teaching masquerading as Christianity. <clears throat> there's, a, there's a connection here that you're going to see with judges when we see the, the, the work of two women in the book of Judges. And, I, and what I want you to do is, is compare what the Bible presents and what the world presents. Because culturally, we've entered a world of make-believe when it comes to the roles of women and men today. Leaders in our government are apparently no longer able to define what a woman or a man is. And whatever that happens to be, it is apparently changeable in a chameleon-like way. And I think, I think we still teach little boys not to hit girls. But a male need only verbally identify himself as a woman. He is now a woman. And then upon entering a sports arena, he's cheered and awarded for brutally manhandling his female opponent. And why not? I mean, if you watched action movies today and you see what Hollywood sells a gullible public, these lies that a tiny woman in stiletto heels can beat up a bevy of hulking thugs, or you pick up any current spy thriller or, or military techno thriller, and one of the main characters invariably is a female elite special operations warrior or a super spy. And seriously, people believe this nonsense. How else can you explain the fact that the U.S. military now allows women in combat arms roles. Although the military and our police forces have had to drastically reduce physical performance standards in, in order to remain stylish and include women in these ranks. So these critics of the Bible are coming from a position of, of being thus informed or misinformed by what's going on in our society, which is fantasy and falsehood. But the Bible deals with the obvious differences between men and women in a realistic manner. That's what, we, that's what I want us to realize here. In Judges chapter 4, the account of Barak and Deborah, and Judges chapter 5, the song of Barak and Deborah, clearly show this. They show women, at times, are the heroines of the story, but in realistic ways. We much, must see this in the text, that this is, this is realism. This is, this is accurate, because the Bible is truth, is it not? It's not human fantasy and imagination written to prop up a false agenda. It doesn't tell us things we just want to hear that make us feel good. It tells us things that are, in fact, God's truth. So, as we've seen, the primary heroes of both of these chapters are women. It's Deborah, the judge of Israel, referred to as a mother in Israel in chapter 5, verse 7, and Yael, the wife of Heber, the Canaanite. And throughout chapter 4 and 5, that is how she is described continually, the wife of Heber, the Canaanite. Now, notice these descriptions. This is what I'm drawing your attention to this. These women are described as a mother, and as a wife. These are roles of womanhood. And in the account, and in the song, they do not engage in hand-to-hand -hand combat with the Canaanite soldiers, like Hollywood would make it out to be. But what each of these women do is unusual, and this draws our attention. It's intended to draw our attention. But what they do that's unusual is certainly within the capabilities they possess. It's not fantastical. 
Both Deborah and Yael fulfilled roles and undertook tasks, yes, ordinarily expected of men. But these tasks, these roles that they undertook were not forbidden to them by God's law. We must realize that. We do not see them, for instance, entering into the priesthood. Now, this is something, this is entirely apart from what feminist theologians would push for. They would use this as a springboard, and they like to target the Roman Catholic Church because it has a male priesthood. It's, 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 a, it's a dominant religion in the world. And they push very strongly for women priests. <clears throat> that really, it doesn't really impact us, but we can see what the agenda is through that. So as a reminder, what we're dealing with in the book of Judges is a time in Israel's history that is rife with failure and apostasy. However, both Deborah and Yael are examples of faithfulness at this time. The role performed by each of these women is remarkable, but as I said, realistic, contrary to what we see in modern illusionary storytelling. This is evidence, I would claim, of the Bible's authenticity rather than legend building or fable making. It's important to realize that the purpose of the account here that we're given is not to break down stereotypes of the roles of the two sexes. No, rather it's to show that life in Israel at this time was not as how it should have been. The people of Israel had gone far astray. And the men of Israel, typified by Barak, typified by his reaction when he is called, did not heed the call of God as they should initially. This brings us to the first point, which is God often acts in remarkable ways. When God moves, he moves in a mighty manner. The Bible shows us time and time again that God seems to delight in showing us his sovereignty by withholding action, withholding divine action until a point is reached in human history, in our lives, when there is no longer any hope in human effort. And by his mighty hand at that point, he moves and makes it very clear that it is he and he alone who accomplished the great thing that was done. This is a primary theme that we see throughout the Bible. And God raises up unlikely people to accomplish his decrees. That's what we're seeing in this uh, section of Judges. Because often it is someone who is relatively powerless and insignificant, or from a part of society from which we would not expect a deliverer to come out of. And we know, we've seen throughout the Bible, the heroes and heroines contained in it come from all walks of life, don't they? They're the great and the small, the rich and the poor, the city dweller and the rural person, the educated and the uneducated. It makes no difference. God uses all. We find the same also throughout church history with the heroes of the faith. They reflect the heroes and the heroines of the Bible. So as we deal with the troubles and tribulations of our current age, which are many and seem to be increasing, we can expect God to surprise us. The Bible teaches us that. Our hope is in the triune God alone, not in any human being. But we must remember that God does raise up men and women throughout history to accomplish what he has decreed to pass. We have to recognize that. So now, we come to this last section of the Song of Deborah and Barak, celebrating the deeds of Yael in vanquishing Sisera, the commander of the armies of Canaan. And I'm going to read this section through in its entirety first. I want you to listen to the song as you follow along. I want you to hear the poetry of the lyrics, and then we'll get into it verse by verse and break it down. But listen to how this is expressed. It's really marvelous poetry. Judges 5, 24 through 31. 
Most blessed of women be Yael, the wife of Heber the Kenite, of of tent-dwelling women most blessed. He asked for water, and she gave him milk. She brought him curds in a noble's bowl. She sent her hand to the tent peg, and her right hand to the workman's mallet. She struck Sisera, she crushed his head, she shattered and pierced his temple. Between her feet he sank, he fell, he lay still. Between her feet he sank, he fell. Where he sank, there he fell, dead. Out of the window she peered. The mother of Sisera wailed to the latest. What is his char- why is his chariot so long in coming? Why tarry the hoofbeats of his chariots? Her wisest princesses answer. Indeed, she answers herself. Have they not found and divided the spoil? A womb or two for every man. Spoil of dyed materials for Sisera. Spoil of dyed materials embroidered. Two pieces of dyed work embroidered for the neck as spoil. So may all your enemies perish, O Lord. But your friends be like the sun as he rises in his might, and the land had rest for 40 years. Now let's look at it verse by verse and draw out what the Lord will have us see. First in verse 24, we read the Sontras sings, Most blessed of women be Yael, the wife of Heber the Kenite, of tent-dwelling women most blessed. This verse blessing the woman, Yael, the wife of Heber the Kenite, serves to stand in sharp, sharp contrast to the preceding verse, verse 23, which is, Curse Meroz, says the angel of the Lord, curse its inhabitants thoroughly, because they did not come to the help of the Lord, to the help of the Lord against the mighty. Whereas the men of Meroz bring a curse down upon their town because they did not come to the help of the Lord, the selfish indifference of these men is contrasted with the valorous action of Yael. Yael is blessed enthusiastically. She is called the most blessed of tent-dwelling women, in contrast to the inhabitants of Meraz, which primarily these are men who are expected to fight on the behalf of the Lord, who are cursed according to the angel of the Lord. Yahel, remember, she's an outsider to Israel, is singled out for this high praise because of the vital role she played in the destruction of Israel's archenemy, Sisera. Verse 25, he asked for water and she gave him milk. She brought him curds in a noble's bowl. So what draws Deborah's admiration here is Yael's resourcefulness and her courage. First, when Sisera, her guest, asked for water, Yael not only brought him milk, but treated him royally by serving the milk in a magnificent bowl fit for the leader of the Canaanite tribes. Even the verb that's used here, which is translated she brought or presented in the second line, is formal. It's in formal language, as in the presentation of a tribute to a king or offerings to God. Then we see a reference to curds or perhaps yogurt in the second line. doesn't mean that she brought him two different types of food, that she brought him milk and curds. No, it's this expression that's translated milk and refer to any milk product. And the double reference to milk products we see here is an element in Hebrew poetry known as parallelism. Remember, Hebrew poetry is different than English poetry. Our poetry is expressed in words. Hebrew poetry is expressed in thought. And as we come now, we're going to come to verses 26, 27. I want you to notice how the action slows down considerably. Deborah and Israel, remember Israel joins in on this song, in this, with this song. They're celebrating every aspect of Sisera's demise. And we see in verses 26 and 27, she sent her hand to the tent peg and her right hand to the workman's ballot. She struck Sisera. She crushed his head. She shattered and pierced his temple. Now this verse is focusing on Yael and her actions. And it's divided into two pairs of uh, parallel lines, two pairs of semantically 
parallel lines. And in each case, the second line offers a more specific definition of the action described in the first line. That's kind of a clunky way to say what I think you probably already see in the text here. The first pair, the focus is on Yael, who grasps her weapons, a tent peg and a workman's mallet. And then the specification comes with the first description, uh, the hand, her hand. Then we get it more specifically next, her right hand. See, it's general, then to specific. And the second pair of these lines highlights the action of Yael, and it employs four different but similar sounding words in Hebrew for striking. And the attention here is driven, is, is drawn, I should say, to Sisera. We start with the general term, his head, then it becomes specific, his temple, specific part of his head. Now these verbs used to describe what occurred within Yehel's tent, we, we translate them struck, crushed, shattered, pierced. And yeah, they are shocking in their apparent viciousness. Listen to how they sound in Hebrew and, and how even though Hebrew poetry is of thought and not of word, the, the songtress here does make them sound very similar. Holma, holpa, mahaka, mahasa. It's, it's really, it flows very, very beautifully, but it's an ugly scene, isn't it? That's what's, that's, that's, there's tension there in that. When someone, when the, when the songtress writes beautifully of something that is not beautiful to behold, but the outcome is beautiful for Israel. And we must bear in mind that this, what's going on, what's being described is the action for which Yael is called Blessed. This is only understandable in the light of just how evil Sisera is and what his intention was for the Israelites. In verse 27 is one of the most impressive examples in the Old Testament of poetic, what's called poetic staircase parallelism. And I'm going to try and describe this to you, um, and hopefully you can follow along, because again, it's really... It's really very magnificent. There's a pattern of repetition in here that I want you to see in verse 27. Now, the first line, between her feet. Second line, he sank. Then he fell. Then he lay still. Then there's a repetition of the first line, what we call line A, between her feet. Then again, line B, he sank. Then line C, he fell. Now, line D is skipped. It's removed. We would think A would repeat. It doesn't. A is removed, and we have a new line put in. Where? That would be line E. Then we, hit, then we have line B again. He sank. A new line, F. There. Now the repetition is resumed. He fell. And then a completely new line and a new word, dead. If I could diagram it, it would make more sense. And it, and it is really, um, I'm astounded when I read this poetry that people f accomplish such a thing. Um, it's, it's beyond my capabilities uh, easily. So although the focus here never leaves Yael, what is being depicted here in this verse is the sight Barak would have faced when he entered the tent. This is what he saw when Yael went to get him and brought him, because he's seeking Sisera. Remember, Sisera, his chariot crashes when the torrent comes down from Mount Tabor and wipes out the Canaanite army, and Sisera flees on foot, and there's a foot pursuit taking, chase, uh, taking place, and he runs into this camp where Heber's tent is, and he, 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 he gets uh, sanctuary, he thinks, from Yael, the wife of Heber, and then here comes Barak into the camp, looking for Sisera. And Yael says, come, I'll take you to him. And he opens the tent flap, and this is what he sees, what has just been described to us. Sisera collapsed, fallen, lying dead on the floor. 
So what we see here is the sight of a totally vanquished foe. A general that was feared throughout Israel. A general that caused many of the tribes of Israel to not respond to God's call to fight. He was so renowned. The end of the scene, an impression is is reinforced by the replacement of the verb lying, to lie, with with another, uh, with a passive participle, uh, sadud, which is translated in the ESV as dead. It means so much more than just dead. It, It denotes devastated, plundered, violently despoiled. Despoiled of what? Of... Sisera's manly warrior glory by whom? By a woman. That is despoiled in the mind of an ancient pagan warrior. This brings us to our second point. Judgment from God will fall swiftly and unexpectedly upon his enemies. What befalls Sisera is emblematic representation of divine judgment. The prophetess Deborah, in chapter 4, foretold that Yahweh would, quote, sell Sisera into the hand of a woman after Barak refused to gather troops on Mount Tabor unless Deborah accompanied him out into the field. Now, Deborah did not take command of the troops, but Barak wanted her there for whatever reason. We talked about potential reasons that she wanted that. She did not usurp his command, though, and and order troops. Uh, She retained her role as judge and as advisor, and as she termed herself, a mother to all Israel. And so Sarah's army that they were going up against was, humanly speaking, invincible, especially by these poorly armed Israelites. We see at the beginning of chapter 5 when Deborah sings, was shield or spear to be seen among 40,000 in Israel? So basically what she's saying is these guys don't even have shields or spears, and they're going up against 900 iron chariots. We can connect to this because the church has faced in the past, now faces in the present, and will face in the future foes that seem humanly invincible, that will seem and have seen seemed much more powerful than us. And people will say, well, there's no way that the church can survive this onslaught. People have been saying that for 2,000 years, and yet the church has not only survived, God's word has spread, the gospel has spread, the church has grown, souls have been saved. We know we do not possess physical weapons of warfare. Our weapons are not material. But we can take comfort and knowledge in the fact that the Lord, in, in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, in the garden, told the serpent that the seed of the woman will crush his head, just as Yael crushed the head of Sisera. <clears throat> I find it very interesting, and this is just my interpretation. Um, it's not anything that is found in the meaning of her name. Her name does mean something. It means antelope. But it's interesting, it's com- comprised of two sounds, Yah, which is, can be a shortened version of Yahweh, and El, which is ancient Semitic root term for God. I think we might see some typology here going on in this story. And Paul reveals to us that the Lord will use the church to crush Satan. In, in Romans 16.20, he says, The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. So Satan and his cohort will experience and receive a crushing defeat. The enemy is crushed, crushed, 
crushed, crushed. That's not just lightly defeated. That's not a draw on a battlefield. That is victory in the extreme. That in human experience is unconditional surrender. Being unable to fight. Being rendered de combat, unable to engage in battle. So those who oppose Christ and his church, like Sisera, are haughty and full of pride. They think of themselves as all-powerful and unstoppable. They flatter themselves, thinking they can overcome God and his people. Well, this is how the psalmist refers to these people, how he responds to them. Look at Psalm 2, the second psalm. I'm going to read verses 3 and 4 from Psalm 2. And imagine an oppressor, a tyrant, someone who is bound to determine to put his thumb on the people of God and rub them out. And there's been many in history who have attempted just that. The psalmist says, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. And then Psalm 37. Psalm 37 echoes this. It's, it's, it's very close in the idea of Psalm 37, verses 12 and 13. The wicked plots against the righteous and gnashes his teeth at him. Gnashing of teeth, that's anger. That's, that, is, that is anger to the point where it's just overflowing and must be, must be expressed in some manner. What does the Lord do? The Lord laughs at the wicked, for he sees that his day is coming. In verses 28 through 30, back in Judges chapter 5, which we're going to turn to, Deborah, a mother in Israel, turns her attention to the mother of Sisera. The scene is heavy in irony. We know what Sisera's mother and her court do not know that Sisera is dead. But these women fear that that is the case. And unlike Deborah and Yael, the mother of the mighty Sisera is nameless and without power. This is what it says in 28 through 30. Out of the window she peered. The mother of Sisera wailed through the lattice. I think a lattice window. So she's in a palace this is a woman sitting in a palace. Compare that to Yael. We're told where Yael dwells, aren't we? In a tent. Notice the difference in what, at the, at the in an ancient age, would be an unsurmountable difference in power between the two. A woman who's a tent-dwelling nomad compared to a royal mother in a palace. There is no way that you can even compare the power. That mother in the palace would hold everything, supposedly, over the nomad woman. And the mother, what is she thinking? She's thinking, why is his chariot so long in coming? Why tarry the hoofbeats of his chariots? And her wisest princesses answer. Indeed, she, the mother, answers herself. Have they not found and divided the spoil, a womb or two for every man? Spoil of dyed materials for Sisera, spoil of dyed materials embroidered, two pieces of dyed work embroidered for the neck as spoil. The scene of these women waiting and worrying for their men to return from war, at first glance, is full of, of, of pathos, emotion that tugs at our heart strings, right? It paints a picture of the helplessness of women in war, who could not help but feel for a mother waiting for her son, a soldier, to return from the battle. But, and there's always a but, isn't there? Consider what these women say in consolation. They say, well, without a doubt, they've been victorious. Our men are not going to be defeated by poorly armed Israelites. What's taking them so long is they're, they're dividing up the spoils. They've, they've looted and they've plundered. 
The spoils, according to the song, include young girls, two virgin wombs for each man. Now, this Hebrew term for wombs, it's, it's correctly translated. That's what it means. But it can also mean a girl or a love toy. These men are rapists of young girls. And the mother, who our heart goes out to, and her princesses are taking consolation in that fact. Oh, don't worry. They're just raping the girls. They'll be home soon. This is the evil that is represented in this commander of the army of Israel. And we must understand that to understand what we see and how he's treated and what some will say is the viciousness and the wrong that is done to this evil man, that he's betrayed by this woman, that he is murdered by this woman. I reject that categorization of Yael completely. So we move from the closing scene of this poem, leaving the Canaanite royal women hoping in vain that their men are safe and hoping, this is what their hope means, they're hoping that the people of God have been slaughtered, raped, and pillaged. That's what they're hoping. I'm sorry, but I can't help but think of a news reporter showing up on their doorstep. Oh, what about Cicero? Oh, he was such a good boy. I can't believe they did such a thing to him. Well, well he was going to rape the girls. Oh, 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 well, you know, we have an excuse for that. He was, gonna be, he was trying to turn over a new leaf. So we see it time and time again. Apology for evil doing in our society. And it's an attempt to make us feel bad for the evildoers, the ones who make their choices. This leads to the third point. There's nothing vicious or evil in exulting over God's defeat of evil. The defeat of evil is a good thing. And we should not, shall not let anyone tell us differently. So some wrongly view the celebration of Yael's killing of Sisera as extolling viciousness, viciousness and evil as a means of fighting viciousness and evil of the Canaanites. But, beloved, all I can say is this was the manner Yahweh provided salvation for Israel. This is what God did. And I cannot comment on that other than say this was the hand of the Lord working. Take it for what you will. It is God who did this. And Yahweh's salvation is to be celebrated, cherished, and savored. That's what Deborah is doing, and that's what Israel is doing. We need to understand that here. And those of us who have not felt the iron yoke of a tyrant crushing down on us might, in blissful ignorance, turn up our nose at a text like this. Those of us that do not have to worry about our young girls being raped by evil men who are attempting to kill us Yes, we can act high and mighty, I suppose. And may the Lord save us that we never experience such a thing. But we have to face the brutal facts that are present us, presented to us in the Bible and not allegorize them, not cover them, up, cover them up and make light of them and reduce the impact of what's being taught here. This was a vicious, vicious time that Israel was going through. What happened was a result of a faithful God delivering Israel through two faithful women, Deborah and Yael. I have no doubt that this wife, this tent-dwelling woman, would have rather have been doing any other thing as a housewife, a homemaker would do, other than dealing with this evil army commander in her tent. She did not go out to hunt him down. He came to her. So let me put this plainly. It is good when evil is defeated. 
And it is the Lord's prerogative alone how this is accomplished. The blessing of the gospel is that evil people are turned from their evilness. We do not know who God has chosen among his elect. We must always keep that in sight. And with the gospel hope, we pray for our enemies. That's our commandment. That's what we are to do. And God will act mightily. Christ will move at times. We must understand that. Draw that distinction. I'm not calling you to pick up your mallet and your tent peg and go out and whack people in the head. Obviously not. (laughs) But we are to be obedient to what Christ has commanded, just as Deborah and Yael were uh, obedient to what they were commanded by Yahweh. So the last verse, verse 31, So may all your enemies perish, O Lord, but your friends be like the sun as he rises in his might, and the land had rest for 40 years. So this closing verse here is both a prayer and a call. The first line opens up with the Hebrew word ken, which can be translated, in the ISV it's, it's translated so, but it can be translated in the same manner as. So the first line is, could be saying, what it is saying is, in the same manner may all your enemies perish, O Yahweh. Meaning that the Lord's overthrow of Sisera and his army is a foretaste, it's a preview of what Christ the King will do when he finally, as our London Baptist Catechism says in in question 29, it says when he finally conquers all of his and our enemies. Now, it is Christ's prerogative how he conquers his enemies. Bear in mind that each of us at one time in our life were enemies of Christ, and Christ conquered us, did he not? He conquered us with the gospel. He changed our hearts. He brought us into his camp, into his family. May he do that with all of his enemies. But he may conquer them in other ways also. So this is what we mean when we pray, thy kingdom come. There's there's no relief for God's people in the kingdom of God. It cannot be fully realized until God's enemies and our enemies are finally destroyed or transformed into our brethren, into God's children. Paul puts this very clearly in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 5 through 10, where he says, this is evidence. This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God that you may consider worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering, since indeed God considers it just to repay repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us. When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God, and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction, away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might, when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed, because our testimony to you was believed. So the Lord's overthrow of Jabin, the king of Canaan, and his general, Sisera, stands as clear witness that the reign of Christ is really coming. The second line of verse 31, but your friends be like the sun as he rises in his might. What does that mean? Well, that's a call to Israel to be faithful. Your friends, the Hebrew can be translated as those who love you. Ancient Israelites connected love with friendship. You did not have one without the other. That's kind of foreign to us today. It's important to realize. But what we've seen so far in the book of Judges and what we're going to see, um, Israel can hardly be described as those who love Yahweh. 
in the Ten Commandments, this word, this Hebrew word for those who love is equivalent to being faithful to covenant obligations. It's like the word that's used for God has said, steadfast loyalty, steadfast love. And we are not loving God. We are not his friends if we're worshiping anyone or anything other than the Lord God himself. In the Ten Commandments, Exodus 20, 4 through 6, tells us, You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love, has said, this is what God does, to thousands of generations of those who love, that's that term, that term for friend, which is ahab, those who love me and keep my commandments. Love, ahab, is the heartfelt covenant faithfulness that Yahweh requires in response to his own faithful love or hesed. We see this more powerfully, most powerfully, I would say, in the Shema of Deuteronomy chapter 6, where the call goes out here, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love, Ahab, the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. These commandments that I give you today are to be upon your hearts. The irony that we see here in verse 31 is that even though this call may be heartfelt, at the time Israel sings this, in the heady time of astounding victory, how good we feel when we're victorious, when something really positive happens, when everything suddenly is right in our world, right? But we know, because we know the story of the Bible, we know that this declaration of love and fidelity to Yahweh rests on clay feet with the Israelites, The theme of this book that we're in, Judges, tells us this. It's a hollow profession of love that they sing of, largely based on human emotion. But we must take care that we do not think ourselves superior to Israel. This should be a warning and a cautionary note to us. As many Christians profess one thing while in their churches on the Lord's Day, and soon neglect to love Christ through faithful obedience to his commandments on Monday. It changes for some very quickly. And we're told, and the land had rest for 40 years. This is through the leadership of Deborah that a full generation of Israelites secures safety and stability in the promised land from all their external enemies. In the first century, after Christ, a Christian writer known to us as Pseudophila wrote, In Deborah, the grace of God has been awakened. Through her, the works of Yahweh have been praised. So Deborah is an inspiring figure to us during a dark time in Israel's history. But we must realize she does not displace men in officially established, by God, positions of leadership. Yet she provides significant service for God. It's, what happened, we, we can see plainly, could not have happened without Deborah's leadership. But Deborah did not go against the framework of God, which God had established for men and women. No, she does it by working within God's framework, what God had had decreed for his his people, men and women. And she's motivated. We can see Deborah's motivation is love and obedience to Yahweh. And through her service, which was being a mother to Israel, that's 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 what's really, I think, remarkable about this, is that what she sees herself doing. She's not in competition with Barak. She's not in competition with any man. 
but she's acting powerfully and faithfully. So yes, God's call to Deborah is unusual. And God's call often catches his people by surprise. But when he calls, we must be obedient to his command. We must be obedient at all times. Join me in prayer, brothers and sisters. Father, we give thanks for the great love that you have given us for your said, your steadfast loyalty to us, no matter how we may fail you. Father, and fail we do at times, we realize that and we repent of it. Father, we ask for your forgiveness and we give thanks that you are a merciful God. Father, we ask that you send your Holy Spirit to increase our obedience to you, to increase our faithfulness in all things, that you draw our mind and our heart to your word when we're, when we're challenged by the by the things that we encounter in this life, both, both in our personal lives and as a, as a body of believers in our church and in the different organizations we're in and in our nation, Father, that we may learn to be a friend to you, that we may love you even more deeply day by day. Father, we give thanks for your word. We give thanks for the accounts you have given to us. We give thanks for the differences you have created in us as men and women. And what a blessing that is to us when we realize the fullness, the completeness that we have when we join together as a body. Father, bless this day as we continue to worship you. Father, bless our 5 p.m. service as we gather again and bless Pastor Steve as he, as he preaches again in the book of Revelation this evening. Give, get us back here safely that we may continue in praise and worship, Father. And again, I lift up those who are feeling ill, Father. We pray for their recovery and they are missed. Let them know that they are loved and that you, of course, love them deeply. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.